Good morning, church, and uh, hope you had a wonderful Christmas yesterday with family and friends. Hermanos, buenos días, y hermanas, y las bendiciones de Dios. Siempre es bueno verte. It's always good to see everyone here. Um, as we begin, let me ask you a question. How many remember the sermon that I preached on Christmas two years ago? Uh, you know, race. Raise your hand if you remember that message. <laughs> Only two, that's good. <laughs> Actually, I will be using a portion of what I shared two years ago, but if you look at the Christmas narratives, Luke 2 is really the go-to narrative for, for the birth of the Christ child, and so I thought we would begin with that, but there's going to be a shift because the good news of a great joy actually began before creation, according to Scripture. Clearly, after the fall, it began to be implemented. We first realized that we, the created, the, you know, God's people, we realized it for the first time uh, over 2,000 years ago outside of uh, Bethlehem for the birth of, of Jesus Christ. We read about His life, our Savior's life throughout the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we understand that He died for us, for our sins, and that He was buried, and that in that third day, by the power of God and His perfection, He was raised from the dead gloriously, and then 50 days later, He ascends into heaven, and the church begins on Pentecost, and we wait for that return. So it didn't begin with the birth, but as far as humanity is concerned, that's when we first laid eyes on God. As John says in John chapter 1, God became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. You just can't separate the gospel message, the good news. It's good news of a great joy at the birth, it's good news of a great joy at the death, burial, and resurrection. It's good news of a great joy at the ascension. And it will be great news of a great joy when he returns to claim his own. That's you and that's me. So that's all good news of a great joy. But what I want to do is let's take what I just shared. And by the way, that, that's the reason we're going to weave this in to the supper. I'll tell you what, the, 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 the universal Christian church, I don't know how else to say it, you know, all of those who believe that Jesus indeed is their Savior and the Son of God, um, from our tradition, from our fellowship, and, and, and elsewhere, just, just the whole of the, of the body of Christ, um, they, normally we don't do that, but they tend to somewhat uh, separate uh, one holy season, as they would say, from another season, uh, in this case, uh, Christmas, and then several months from now, when our Jewish friends are celebrating the Passover, the Christian world will celebrate Easter, but we, and I think the whole church really understands this, certainly we, in the body of Christ, we understand that every first day of the week, the first day of every week, when we come together, all that we do is praising God for good news of a great joy. 
And so we celebrate the fact that God came to earth. We celebrate the fact that, <clears throat> that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, <clears throat> that he was raised from the dead, and we, and we really experience that most holistically in the supper, in the bread, and the cup. And sometimes, perhaps even we, forget the connection. And so I thought this would be a great reminder to kind of weave the two together. So, let's look at this text. I'll just do it somewhat from memory, beginning from verse 10. We find probably the angel Gabriel, he's not named in Luke's narrative, but soon after he'll be talking to Mary. So, it may well be Gabriel, if not Gabriel, what other, some other angel that the Lord God sent. And so we see the angel of God appearing before some shepherds of the field. And as I would be and you would be, they were startled. And so he said, be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a for to born for 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 you this day there is born in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger and Luke tells us and suddenly there was with this angel a multitude of the heavenly host all praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And then in verse 26, Luke 2, uh, pardon me, in, in verse 16, Luke 2, 16, we realize that Luke records, and the shepherds went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now, we don't know this for a fact, but from all the things that I've read over the years, I believe it as a fact, and I think Scripture certainly corroborates it. How did the shepherds know where to find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloth? And Bethlehem wasn't large, but it was larger then than it is now. In fact, the footprint of Bethlehem back in the first century was as large as the footprint of, of all of Jerusalem. And it extended far beyond the little village where there might have been a few houses. And who knows, apparently there was at least one inn because it was a well-trafficked little village. But have you ever wondered how these shepherds understood where to go? Do you think they just went to everywhere and just knocked on doors and asked, have you, has the baby been born recently or something? Moreover, do you think God <laughs> would leave to chance the shepherds finding the Christ child? Do you think if God wanted room in the inn, there would not be room in the inn? I mean, this is all choreographed by Yahweh, by God the Father. And it's choreographed for a reason. Luke lends itself to it, Matthew 1 the same way, and John. The, the, there's a reason for this choreograph. Not John, Matthew and Luke. Those two are the, the, the two gospel readers. Okay, first of all, these weren't any ordinary shepherds. 
they clearly, at least from my studies as I read the text, they clearly were Levitical priests. The temple in Jerusalem, about every year, they say only during Passover. This doesn't count the other high holy days like, like uh, Shavuot or Sukkot, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, and all the other high holy days. Just during Passover, the estimate is 250,000 lambs were sacrificed, lambs and goats. And so the temple the Sadducean guard and the, and, the, and the high council, they had their own flocks. Why, why couldn't they just go to any ordinary shepherd and say, bring us a few thousand lambs? Well, according to Exodus 12, 5, they, they were pretty strictly governed. They, first of all, they had to be without blemish, without spot. Not spot, but without any damage on them, without blemish. They didn't have to be white. They could be white, black, or spotted, but they had to be without any blemish. And they had to be at least one year old, the males did, for the sin offering because the sacrifice was to atone for sin. The female lambs and goats were used for, uh, for a peace offering, but the sin of atonement to atone for sin had to be a one-year-old male, Exodus 12, 5, without spot or blemish. And so they had their own flocks. Now, the best place to graze for centuries before the birth of our Lord, the best place to graze was near Bethlehem. Actually, it was in the province of Bethlehem. It was near what they, what they call the Migdal Adair. There was a, there was a watchtower, and it was, it was built 3,500 years ago. In fact, Rachel, the wife of, of, uh, the uh, wife of Jacob, is actually buried there. Genesis 35, verse 20 and 21, you can read it for yourself. So this was a very special place. The, the uh, Jews considered it holy. The Christians today consider it somewhat holy. It's where Rachel is buried. You can go there this day to the Migdal Adair. It's a Hebrew expression meaning, literally, tower of the flock. Now here's the connection that I'd like for you to at least consider. You have, out in the field at night, these flocks of sheep. Whenever a, a lamb was born in any other flock, there was no swaddling cloth used. Why? Well, because they didn't care if they were blemished or not, if they're going to butcher and eat them, or, you know, use them to breed or whatever. But unso, unso, is that a word? Not so. That's not a word, by the way. Not so with the temple flocks. So these shepherds were not any ordinary shepherds. They were Levitical priests who were trained to be shepherds, to care for and tend and protect the flocks. Because from these flocks near Migdal Adair came the sacrifices for the temple. So when a ewe was ready to give birth, and normally they gave birth to two lambs, they say one to three, but most of the time two, when they were ready to give birth, the shepherds knew they would bring the ewe in to the nearby only one birthing cave. It might have changed every year as to where, but it was a birthing cave. Uh, Migdal Adair is, is one mile south of the little village of Bethlehem, but it's all called Bethlehem. And so between the flocks grazing and Bethlehem to the north, one mile away, somewhere between those two was their birthing cave. And the reason they used swaddling cloth 
is because the moment the ewe gave birth, normally to two lambs, they would take the lambs and quickly bind them, their legs, and bind them in swaddling cloth so they would not have They wouldn't be thrashing about and injure themselves. They wanted to give them from the get-go, from birth, the best chance of one day, one year from that moment, to becoming the sin atonement, to atone for sin, the sin sacrifice. And so, when the angel appeared, he said, be not afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy. For to you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. There was hardly any wood. If you go right now to Palestine, you don't see much, many trees, maybe a few olive bushes. Nothing like we have in Tennessee here. The mangers were out of limestone, the feeding troughs, the, where they birthed the, ewe, the uh, lambs. The word manger is a general word, by the way. It doesn't specify it exactly what it could be a stall, it could be a feeding trough, it could be where they birthed the lamb. But in the cave at Migdal Adair, it was specific. They would take, apparently from what we've read in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is... is um, is a, is a compilation of oral rabbinic traditions. And if you read it, you can really, you know, from a certain tractate, you can, you can see this coming to life. Is it canonical? No. Does it corroborate Scripture? Yes, it does. And so they would take these limestone, these small limestone rocks, and they would hewn out a double, uh, a double depression. And they called it, in Hebrew, manger. Now, I don't think that was the sign for the shepherds, but when the angel said swaddling cloth, that was a sign. And so they went with haste, and they found in haste that very moment. They leave the angel, and they find, they go right to the birthing cave, and who do they find? They find precisely what God said they would find. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby in swaddling cloth lying in a manger. And that's the opening narrative. That's the, that's the birth of Jesus. Good news of a great joy. It really brings added uh, emphasis 30, nearly 33 years later when John the Baptist, very nearby on the River Jordan, and he's with Andrew and probably John, the son of Zebedee. And Jesus walks up to be baptized. And what does John the baptizer say to these two disciples? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Church, it's not by accident that we see all of this unfold Instead of a male lamb that was birthed there in a limestone wrapped in swaddling cloth, you have God who became flesh, dwelt among us wrapped in swaddling cloth. There was a great text in Revelation 4 and 5 that really explains who the Lamb of God is at the end. Now keep in mind, this is a complete story. This is the good news of a great joy. It just
to begin in Luke 2, but it goes all the way to Revelation 22. And you have in Revelation 4 or 5 what's called the great throne scene. And so you've got John, the apostle, who's privy to this throne scene. You can read both chapters later and really go through it. But you have in Revelation chapter 4, beginning, you have uh, God, Yahweh, described so brilliantly that the only description that John could, like a jasper or a carnelian, these precious gems. And God is holding a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. And around God are four living creatures. We don't, you know, John doesn't name them. Apparently the Spirit didn't give the names to John other than living creatures. But very possibly we know God created them. And it's humanity and the angelic beings that God created. They're probably four angels. And maybe not just any angel. Maybe the cherubim who protected the Garden of Eden. And they would always protect the presence of God. So for, for right now, you can do your own work. We'll call them cherubim. And so you've got God <clears throat> holding a scroll, seven seals, four cherubim. And I mean, they're described and they're, they're powerful beings. Around the four living creatures are 24 elders. We don't know who they are. We do know they were authoritative because they um, had crowns and they had white robes and they sat on thrones, diadem, thrones, um, and, and white garments. Maybe the 12 apostles, who knows? Maybe the 12 patriarchs, I don't know. I think that's who they were as you read through. But anyway, there are 24 authoritative elders. Around the elders were, the Bible says, a myriad of angels. Now that's just a word meaning innumerable. So millions and millions of angels. Do you get the picture? It's the great throne saying God, four living creatures, 24 elders, angels everywhere. And then John says, a strong, um, a, a strong uh, angel stepped forward and bellowed to the heavens. Who is worthy? Keep this in mind now. Who is worthy to approach God and take the scroll from his hand and break open the seals? And no one moved. Not the angels, not Michael the archangel, not the four living creatures, not any of the elders, no one moved. And John, who's privy to this, begins to cry. Now, once we read through Revelation, we'll discover why John was crying. Because the scroll contained the good news of a great joy. The scroll contains the, the, the salvific plan for humanity. And if no one was worthy to implement it, we would all be lost and we would die. We would go to hell. We would, not, we would be without God. And John knows this, and he weeps. One of the elders steps up, walks over to John, and says, John, weep not. There is someone who's worthy. He is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. And I don't know, I think John turns expecting to see this roaring lion. Instead, what does he see? The Lamb. A paschal lamb, fit for the slaughter, ready to be sacrificed. And the lamb walks up to the throne and authoritatively takes the scroll from the hand of the Father. 
And every time a seal is broken, a great catastrophe takes place. That's the rest of Revelation. He comes to the seventh seal. You have seven trumpets. Every trumpet blows until the seventh trumpet. And when the seventh trumpet blows, it's over. And the devil is defeated. And the Lamb of God forgives all sin of his people, God's people. It's a beautiful ending to what began back in Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water that carried all the way through to the birth of the Christ child, 33 years later to, to, his, to his death, which breaks our heart but was completely necessary, all the way to the glorious resurrection, to the ascension, and now he's come back and he will claim his own. It's one story, not many stories, one story. It's good news of a great joy. And every week we celebrate it. Let's all sing. Come, if you will, please stand. And you'll be seated after the song. And let's sing, Come Share the Lamb. Or the Lord. Come Share the Lord. We gather here in Jesus' name. His love is burning in our hearts like living flame. For through the loving Son, the Father makes us one. Come take the bread, come drink the wine, come share the Lord. No one is a stranger here, everyone belongs, finding our forgiveness here, we in turn forgive our wrongs. He joins us here. He breaks the bread. The Lord who pours the cup is risen from the dead. The one we love the most is now our gracious host. Come take the bread, come drink the wine, come share the Lord. We are now a family, not which the Lord is head. Though he meets us in the breaking of the bread, we'll gather soon where Jesus seems. We'll see the glory of the Lord and coming King. Now we anticipate the feast for which we wait. Come take the bread, come drink the wine, come share the Lord. Come take the bread, come drink the wine, come share the Lord. 
Amen. Please be seated. On the night when our Lord was betrayed, by the way, if you will, please, you can start opening both the bread and the cup. The one thing I've been so proud of with me the last 19 months is that I haven't yet spilled the grape juice. Although there are times when you wish you had a Bowie knife. I found that humorous and somebody told that to me. So. On the night when our Lord was betrayed, on the night when our Lord was betrayed, he, we find him in the upper room of a nameless friend, as you've heard me teach and preach, probably the house of John Mark. Family was a wealthy family in Jerusalem. I believe that's the same upper room they met in on Pentecost. I believe it was Jesus' go-to house with Mary, John's mother. The father had passed away. So apparently the young man, John Mark, was the head of the household. They also owned, by the way, the uh, Olive Garden, the Mount of Olives, a portion of that. And they clearly owned the Garden of Gethsemane. So all of this connects. Um, at any rate, they were in the upper room, Matthew 26, and they're celebrating the Passover a day early because Jesus is going to be crucified the following day, that late that night, early the next morning. He's in the garden. And so they're in the upper room, and Jesus takes the bread out of its context. Now, it, it means something very similar, but it's out of its context, and it's given a spiritual uh, meaning. The Jews commemorated the Passover. They celebrated the Passover meal to commemorate their deliverance from bondage, from slavery. We celebrate the Lord's Supper to commemorate our deliverance from spiritual bondage and spiritual slavery. So you have the same principle, but entirely loftier meaning. It takes far more power to save us from our sins than to save us physically. And so Jesus uses this moment, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, to institute what would become the Lord's Supper. So he takes the, 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 um, the bread, the unleavened bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to all the apostles who are around the table. And he says, this is my body, broken, shed, not shed, uh, um, this is my body given for you. And then they took the bread. There's a great text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, when Paul writes, the, the bread which we break, question, is it not a fellowship with the body of Christ? And now here's the clincher church. Somos la familia de Dios, no cualquier familia, sino la familia de Cristo. We are the family of God. We, the very next verse, we who are many become one because we take the one bread, not the physical bread. We consume the bread of life, Jesus. We all come, look at, you know, I've said this, look around us. There are, I don't know, maybe 400 here, I don't know, and I don't know how many online. We are so different. 
We're dressed differently. Our hair is different or lack of our, you know, beards and no beards and men and women and different clothing. And we, we are different in every way. Some of us speak different languages. Our first language is not English and Spanish or whatever. We're different. But we are the we, we are one with Christ because we take the one bread. With that in mind, my brothers and sisters, let us receive the bread of life. Sitting at the table, after they took... I didn't offer a blessing over the bread. I apologize for that. Nothing's written. In a moment before the cup, I'll say a blessing for both. So... Forgive me for not having two separate prayers. I do believe that would be a better approach. I think it's all fine. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. It's all fine. It's all fine. It really is good. It's okay. Um, so we see Jesus around the table. He's already taken the bread. And then he takes the cup, a chalice. And he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what's important for us to remember, because we're Gentiles, is that this is not any ordinary cup. This is deliberate. No less than the cave was deliberate. And there was no room in the end that was deliberate. Why? Because it fit into God's whole scheme of redemption. And so does the cup. The Jews would always, at least during the intertestamental period, they would always celebrate four cups during the Passover. Some argue five, and we'll not go there, but four cups. We know that for a fact. They even gave them names because they were consumed during uh, different parts of the Passover. They were called the, the, the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of restoration. And they follow the text from Exodus chapter 6, where Moses writes and, and, and tells the people that God's speaking when God says, I will bring you out of Egypt. I will deliver you from bondage, from slavery. I will redeem you with my power. And I will take you as my people. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will set you apart. I will sanctify you. I will deliver you from slavery. You are no longer in bondage. You're my people. I will redeem you with my power, and I will take you as my people. Jesus... We know this from Scripture, not external sources. Jesus took the third cup. How do we know that? Again, more time later, perhaps in a class. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 17, uh, 10, 16. Paul reverses the bread and the cup. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He asks the Corinthian church. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a fellowship? a participation, a koinonia in the blood of Christ. The third cup was called, had two different names. The formal name was cup of redemption. I will redeem you with my power. 
but it always preceded the blessing after the meal. So you have the meal, the, the bulk of the meal consumed, you had the third cup, and then there was a blessing, a brukata, blessing, offered after the meal, after the cup. And so it's called not only the cup of redemption, it's also called the cup of blessing. And we know when it was. Only one of the four was consumed after supper. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25 when he talked about in verse 23, for I received from the Lord, while I also received, etc. And then he goes to verse 25, and then he took the cup. What's the next two words in English? After supper. And then he took the cup after supper and said, this uh, is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. You can read the text yourself. It was clearly the third cup. It makes all the difference in the world. Has God brought us out of Egypt? Has God brought us out of uh, out of uh, uh, slavery to sin and deliver us from sin? Yes. Has He taken us as His people? Yes. But the redemption is what separates us from the world. Redemption. I'm going to take another two or three minutes. I know I'm only up here once every six months, so. Yeah, now, I know some of you know the story because I shared it years ago that, that of, of our three sons, two of them waited tables. Uh, Shane, you know Shane really well. Shane waited tables uh, while he was at Lipscomb uh, over in the Green Hills area. And he would tell me horror stories that, that some of them would even stiff him. They, would, they didn't like the service or something. And it just, it just you know, it's a father's anger, right? It just made me so mad. About that time, we were traveling through Corpus Christi. Here's Lonnie, Debbie's brother, and Lorraine. They're, we all grew up together. Traveling through Corpus Christi. Shane's serving tables in Green Hills. He's going to Lipscomb. We go to Cracker Barrel on South Padre Island Drive. And in the summertime, and this young boy, forgive me for you teens, but this, this young man, 16 years old, out of school in the summer working, takes my mama's pancake breakfast that I always get. Two, two plates, right? A lot of food. And then Debbie gets her stuff. And this boy, 16-year-old boy, is carrying this breakfast. First day on the job. I didn't know that. I'm sitting at the table and just before the table, he trips. And everything went. The pancakes and the butter and the syrup and the eggs and my crispy bacon and Debbie's gravy. Everything went. <laughs> and that boy just turned. Oh, what is a sheep? And I said, no hay problema. No problem. The manager came. I left, and I, you know, we all need to tip well, but I think I left $50 for about an $18 meal. All I saw was Shane and John Mark, who also waited. All I saw was shame. And every time 
you sin and I sin. All he sees is Jesus. He loves me just for me. But in truth, he sees Christ. I will redeem you, claim you with my power. And every time I take the cup, I think of that. And you have your own memory jogger. And it's just like, wow, Lord, we belong to you. That's why I said, somos la familia. No cualquiera, not any ordinary family. Sino la familia, we are the family of God. And we're together. So church, receive your cup of salvation as the body of Christ. And then, of course, the great apostle Paul said, oh, there's one more step. It's good at the birth, and it's good news of a great joy at the glorious uh, resurrection, the death, resurrection. He's the Lamb of God. And there's good news of a great joy that you celebrate every Sunday on the Lord's Day and every day during the week. And there's good news of a great joy that you proclaim to the community. Notice what he says in verse 26. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim. Now, we focus on the death. It does say we proclaim his death. But notice how Paul continues. Until he comes. We're not proclaiming a dead Christ. We're proclaiming a living Lord. Living. That's why it's good news of a great joy. If I could invite our shepherds to walk forward, if you will, please, brothers, in just a moment, you can receive the people in prayer. So if you will, please just stand up right now. Thank you. Thank you. And walk forward. We proclaim, in fact, everyone stand, please. It's good news of a great joy because we proclaim. That's what we're telling the, 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 the neighborhood of Antioch, the community. That's what we're telling everyone. And that's why we sing, Joe David, lead us, joy to the world.